to begin in what we're calling a teaching on the book of James, and specifically what we're going to be diving into is chapter one. And so we're going to be spending um, six parts in chapter one, and we're going to focus on trials and tribulations. Trials, tribulations, and temptations is what we're going to be focusing on. So if you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to start in chapter one, verse one. And I want to begin perhaps the best way I know how into a study like this by answering three important questions that I think will help build some context before we ever get into some of the remaining verses. But as we look at verse one, James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So the first question that I want to open up with is this question, who was James? Now we see that he penned in his letter, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most would agree the author of James to be the half-brother of Jesus. Now when you're conceived by the Holy Spirit, that really doesn't leave any other option but to be a half-sibling. But James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem during a very difficult time. He was referred to as a pillar by Paul in the letter that he would write to the church in Galatia. He would even go go together with other disciples, this is Paul I'm talking about, to go see James to testify to the ministry that was taking place with the Gentiles. We see this in the book of Acts chapter 21. After Peter was delivered from prison, we see recorded in Acts chapter 12, verse 17, that he sent a special message to James. So all of this helps us to see a little bit more how highly regarded James was by some of the people that we know in scripture. Now, regarding his death, tradition tells us that James was martyred in AD 62, The story is that the Pharisees so hated James' testimony for Jesus that they had him cast down from the temple and then beaten to death by what we would know to be wooden mallets. He was so honored by the Jews, though, for his holiness that he was beaten because when he fell from the temple, he didn't die. And so out of an act of mercy, they beat him to end his suffering. Now, additionally, the story continues that when James died, he was praying for, in a similar way as to what we see Stephen do in the book of Acts, praying for those who were killing him by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think this is a great depiction of James's legacy. It is said that he prayed so much His knees were as hard as camels. And so perhaps you have heard him referred to as camel knees. Second question that I want to present to us and try to answer is, who was James writing to? He wrote, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. James wrote to the Jews living outside the land of Palestine. Now specifically, James sent this letter to Christian Jews which we can interpret from his usage of brothers and sisters. We see him use that language throughout his letter. And we make note of a specific context that these Christian Jews were scattered. 
Now I want to intersect here because we're going to find this theme throughout the, the chapter uh, one. We see that he's writing to a scattered people and not a sheltered people. And church, I think that's a word for us today to understand that though we might be scattered, we are not sheltered from things such as trials, tribulations, and temptations. So it was a result of the first wave of persecution that we see recorded by Paul in Acts chapter 8, which consequently presented unique problems and needs for the believers to which James was writing. Now, the third question that I want to try to answer, why did James write? Now, as we read through the epistle of James, we discover that these early believers were having some problems in their personal life and in their church fellowship. And if you've ever read through the book of James before, or perhaps as we open up into a series in the book of James, you might be prompted to do so, we find it's not much different from the problems that afflict believers today and even the church in America today. One of the major problems was a failure on the part of many to live what they profess to believe. Therefore, James writes to address these Christians, both then and for us today as we read through the scriptures regarding these common problems that exist amongst believers. We see in chapter one, he addresses impatience and difficulties and not living out the Christian standards. We see in chapter two, in chapter two he addresses the Christians that are showing favoritism and talking but not living the truth. We see in chapter three that he would address the Christians that could not control their tongue. We see in chapter four that he would address Christians who are fighting, slandering, coveting, and being judgmental. And we see as he concludes in chapter five that he addresses Christians in regards to materialism and indifference. Now there's so much more context that I could give, but I feel confident that this will help us moving forward as we get into the last part of chapter one or the latter parts of chapter one. So as we dive into part one of our series, we're gonna be looking at verses two through eight. So let's read it together. Verse two reads, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, perhaps you've heard the old adage, when life gives you lemon, make lemonade. See, we use this adage to encourage optimism in the face of adversity. One of my favorite versions of this adage is when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, then figure out how to sell it for $5 a glass. <laughs> the basic philosophy of this adage, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, is sound. I'm so inspired by the number of examples that we see throughout scripture where God turns people's trials 
into triumphs. And James encourages us that we too can experience such in our lives as Christians. Now in verses two through eight, I wanna give us four essentials to follow when we find ourselves in the midst of trials, tribulations, or temptations. One of the first thing that, things that he addresses is he says in the first word that he uses of the NIV, he says, consider, consider. Now this word is a matter of perspective. James says, consider it pure joy. See, the matter at hand is a matter of perspective. Now, I want to be honest with you and be vulnerable. When I would first read this particular passage of Scripture some time ago, and every now and then it happens again, but what I tend to feel and experience, I think the best way I can illustrate it is from a scene of a movie called The Grinch. Now, you have Cindy Lou Who, who would come to the Grinch's lair and she would give to him an invitation to be holiday cheermeister. And when she holds this invitation in her hand and the Grinch bends down and he starts to read this invitation, he begins to read, come celebrate with friends. And he pulls back and he says, <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? And that's how I feel sometimes when I read this particular passage of James. Consider it pure joy, he says. Now, honestly, my tendency is not to consider it pure joy, but rather to pout. That's my tendency. Now, I know it's common to humanity. We might cop an attitude with God. We might cop an attitude with others. We might quit. We might go back to what's easy or what's comfortable in the context of our Christian walk and our Christian relationships with one another. But I think it's common to humanity that we may not initially respond by considering it pure joy. But James offers us a new perspective, a different perspective, and frankly, a heavenly perspective. And I want to offer this to you. I think it's likely that our outcome excuse me, our outlook will determine our outcome. Or perhaps I can say it this way, our attitude will determine our action. Church, we have got to learn to trust the trials for inevitably they will come. You know it to be said by Jesus himself, here on earth, you will have many trials. That's John 16, 33. Paul says we must go through hardships, Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. Peter tells us to not be surprised if we are tested. That's 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Now, the word test is an interesting word, but one translation references it as defining it as calamities or trials that test the character. So we must consider, James says, what's being produced. Now, different translations have different words that are used. Another translation might use the word count. But this word that's being used by James is a financial term. When we face trials, we must consider them in the light of what God is doing for us. It's a profit. It's a financial term a profit for us, and even more so, a profit for his glory. Amen. 
So church, an issue arises, however, when we don't consider what we go through worth that which will be produced. For our values determine our evaluations. And that can be in a positive sense or that can be in a negative sense. And I want to speak to the negative side of this for a moment. In the negative sense, if we value comfort more than character, then these trials that we experience in life will upset us. If we value the present over the future, then these trials will become, will cause us to become embittered rather than them making us better. And so what I want to ask of us and what I want to charge of us is that when these trials come, we need to begin with a change of perspective or we need to begin with an adjustment to our attitude that we wouldn't just end with joy, but that we, we might begin with joy. Consider it pure joy, says James. In verse 3, he would go on and he would say, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Because you know. What do we know? That the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Now, I am a sucker for a good story on perseverance. And they're not hard to find. They're everywhere. But I want to share with you quickly one story that I am particularly fond of. A story of a guy by the name of Jack Canfield. Now, you may or may not be familiar with this name, but Jack Canfield was chicken soup for the sole co-creator. And it is said that Jack and his co-author, Mark Victor Hansen, pitched the original chicken soup for the soul um, to over 130 different publishers. But none of them were interested in what they had to offer. In fact, it is said that many times the response that they got was that no one wants to read a hundred inspirational stories. Now, after a hundred and plus, a hundred plus pitches, their agent would eventually drop them as well. But these guys were so determined to get this book published. They believed in what they had to offer, so they didn't quit. Now, luckily, because they never gave up and continued to persevere, they were picked up by a small publisher in Florida. Now there are over 250 chicken soup for the soul books and over 500 million copies that have been sold worldwide. Imagine if they didn't persevere. Church, we must know that faith is always tested. We see this throughout scripture. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. But no, God always does so to bring out the best. It is the enemy who tempts us to bring out the worst. And as I previously stated, but perhaps I'll try to say it a little bit differently, these testings work for us and not against us. So, however, what we find is that God's desire is for these trials to bring out the best or through our being tempted, they will reveal the worst. Now, I've learned in my experiences that if we do find that we have given in to temptation, 
that if we humble ourselves and we repent, what I've learned is that it will expose what God wants to work on so that we can become better. I think that speaks to how God is able to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good. So note, such testing is used to help us to mature. He says, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what James would write. So God wants to produce patience, endurance, and the ability to keep going when things are tough. Paul would also allude to this as well in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. So therefore, we know what trials will do in us. We know what trials will do for us. And we know that the end result will bring glory to God. So with this understanding in mind, knowing that God has a purpose in trials, it can help us to joyfully endure. I love what one commentary wrote. And forgive me, I didn't know who to give credit to, so I'll just say a commentary. It reads like this. The enemy has the advantage over an ignorant believer, but a Christian who knows the Bible and understands the purposes of God cannot be overcome. Amen. He would go on and write in verse four. He would say, let perseverance finish its work. So the next essential that I wanna add is let. Now this is a matter of our will. James says, let perseverance finish its work. And church, I wanna remind us that God cannot build our character without our cooperation. We must let him. Now, there is bittersweet news attached to this. If you are a child of God, the Bible lets us know if we resist him, he will chasten us into submission. But the truth is we are better off submitting to him so he can accomplish his work in us and his work through us. And it's often if not always, that he works in us before he works through us. We see see this also throughout scripture, people like Moses and Abraham, Jacob, and even the Israelites. But this inner working that I'm referring to can be difficult. But God cannot work in us without our consent. Therefore, it's important that we subdue our will that we subdue our feelings, that we subdue our thoughts to accept God's will. Not my will, but your will be done. For if we don't, we will go through trials and end up more like immature children than mature adults. Now, as a father of two, a six-year-old and a two-year-old, I am often confronted with this reality. What I experience on a daily basis, whining, complaining, ungratefulness, irrationality. Let me just vent for a moment. But let that sink in, church, how often we can do the same. Additionally, there's a concern for myself and for you that we don't let perseverance finish its work. James was very clear Let perseverance finish its work. And I think what I have found 
and perhaps I can even speak so boldly from my experience, what I see often is that there are people who will let God start his work, but are unwilling to let God finish his work. For it's a hard thing to consider, but do the trials that we may be under have our consent or has it become something that we resent? For it can become easy to resent the trial and I would say dangerously easy for us to begin to resent the Lord. I was praying in the green room before tonight and I was praying for a particular tribulation that I was under. And what I felt like I heard the Lord speak to me, and I wrote it down to make sure that I communicated this the right way. But what I felt like I heard the Lord speak to me is don't ask away what I have permitted. Let me make sure I got that right. Don't ask away what I have permitted. And there are times I think in the midst of trials and tribulations we find ourselves asking away what God has permitted so that we might grow. So let us not resent the trial, but instead let us consent to the trial. Verse five, and the fourth essential that I wanna make mention of, he would say, ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. And I think this is a matter of the heart. We read later in James's letter that the Christian's prayers were flawed. You can fast forward another time to James chapter four where he references this. But what we find is that the Christian's prayers were flawed. Their prayers were full of asking for things with the wrong motives, or even instead of asking, they were fighting or fleshing out. So James offers us or throws us a bone in this context. What ought a Christian pray during these trials? Well, I've noticed a tendency in myself. I typically ask for strength in the midst of trials that I may be facing. But James writes and he encourages us to pray for wisdom. Why wisdom, you might ask? Well, I would venture to say we need to ask for wisdom so that we will not waste the opportunity that God has given us to grow. For wisdom helps us to understand how to use the trial for our good and for his glory. And it's a great complement to what we've already established. We consider the prophet, not the prophet of the Lord, but P-R-O-F-I-T, okay, just to be clear. Having considered, we know or have concluded its worthiness. And now that we know, we let his will be done. And now that we have subdued our own will, we ask for wisdom and how to move forward. Now we need strength. We need grace. We need deliverance. There's nothing wrong with praying for those things. But James remind, reminds us we greatly need wisdom in the midst of our trials. Now, not only does James explain what to ask for, but he also explains how to ask. He says, ask in faith, not doubting. See, one of the greatest enemies to answer prayer is unbelief. Now, again, we build doctrine not from one scripture, but from all the scripture. 
contextually, I believe James says this so that we won't stop praying and asking for God while we are in trials or while we are under trials. For it's easy to start out with faith that says yes and to begin to pray at the beginning of our trial, but what happens when we aren't seeing the fruit of our prayers? I think it's then that we can experience unbelief that begins to say no. And we are exactly what James illustrates with waves of the sea. I remember when I was little, I used to love to go fishing with my dad. My dad spent some time as a professional fisherman, bass fisherman. And so he loved to take me as well. But he started me out with a push-button rod and then a bobber. And then beneath it would be the, the fishing line and then a hook. And then we would use crickets or worms or whatever. And you would watch the bobber. But I remember it being particularly difficult when waves were associated because of the wind or because of boats or whatever it might be. There were times when I couldn't quite pick up the bobber. Is it going under? Is it not going under? And I think that we can be the same way in the midst of our trials. We're up one minute, down the next, and being tossed back and forth. Now, again, within context, James is referencing that we ought to pray for wisdom. But I do believe that there is a principle we can see that we can apply to prayer. That we continue to pray with an unwavering faith. And I remind you, faith is confidence in what we hope for, but that which we may not see. And as it pertains to wisdom, we have the encouragement to do so in that God gives generously to all without finding fault. Church, I would encourage us to ask for wisdom.